Today, with all the insanity happening across North America, with laws coming out that seem to be totally against natural law, against justice, particularly with COVID and the prospect of having even the police show up at your door, uh, trying to take your kids away, forced vaccination, all this seemingly on our doorstep, wanted to get an inside view from a police officer as to what's happening on the inside with the police where to go. There have been a lot of police who have stood up for the rights of citizens, even against some of these tyrannical laws. Some of the police are actually marching uh, with people against forced vaccination, against forced lockdowns, against a lot of this stuff that tramples upon people's rights. And uh, we've got a former police officer with the Ottawa police. So you're going to want to stay tuned. Rob Stocky, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. It is uh, it is great to be with you. Thank you for your service uh, on the Ottawa Police Force. Um, tell us, if you will, to start a little bit about your background with the police and uh, what you're doing now. So my background is I became a police officer in 1997. I was hired by the Ottawa Police. Uh, I was with them for 13 years. Um, was very lucky, got to participate in a wide variety of sections. I was a, a motorcycle officer. I was an underwater search and recovery diver. Uh, I was a plainclothes officer. I worked on patrol. Then I was promoted to sergeant. Uh, I became a supervisor, a road boss. And the men and women I worked with are, to this day, are the are amongst the finest. There's a reason why we call our police officers the finest. And I, and I really cherish those days that I was there. Uh, since leaving the police, I got into private industry. I got into, uh, I have two companies that I own. One is an advertising company and the other one is a construction company. And um, I'm very happy to be in the private sector. I don't have, you know, I can make my own decisions. I'm not subject to somebody else's, I'm not subject to somebody else's whim. And so that's what I've been doing since leaving the police. And I've been doing a lot of volunteering as well, because as you're, as you're, you know, we've talked about, there's a lot of weird things going on in Canada right now, a lot of concerning things, and being able to speak freely is very important. And so that's what I've been doing since. I've been doing a lot of volunteering and working in private industry. We have seen across North America some of the most insane things that we've ever seen in our lifetimes. Um, and a lot of it is because of really unjust laws that have been passed, particularly with regard to COVID right now, where we saw lockdowns, we saw protests, we saw an unequal uh, sort of treatment. In, in, in the United States, we saw Black Lives Matter uh, go on and do all sorts of nefarious things, violent things, and yet there was kind of a standoffish, let it happen attitude. And yet when there's protests about the lockdowns and stuff, sometimes there was harsh enforcement. So a, a, a big inequality that we saw there. And so the the people of, you know, who want to respect freedom, they want to believe in their police officers. They don't go with the defund the police movement. They want to support the police. Yet at the same time, there's coming a, a trepidation on the part of some wondering where the police are going to go. Can you give us an inside perspective 
from the police officers of what they're feeling at this time, because there's so much confusion right now. There is a lot of confusion. And having been a police officer, I'm still in contact with a lot of my former colleagues. Uh, we're still friends. We'll still have a beer together. We'll still talk about things the way they're happening nowadays. And through volunteering, I've had the privilege of uh, having to or getting being able to discuss what is going on with other police officers. So I still keep in contact. And the police force on this issue, to some degree, is divided, but at different levels. So there are some police officers who, who believe that their job is to enforce the law, and th that's it. And if the law says this, or if they're told to do this, that's what they're going to do, because that's, their, that's what they're supposed to do. That is wrong. You have to enforce laws uh, in regards to what is the supreme law of the land? And if there is a, a law that contravenes that supreme law of the land, which in Canada is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, if you are breaching that, you are putting yourself in jeopardy, both um, professionally and even civilly. You can be civilly liable for breaching someone's charter rights. There is case law for that. So most police officers, to, ask your question, to answer your question, are not on, in line with what is actually happening. But the degree of resistance that they're exercising in regards to what is happening is different. Some officers are very passive. They don't speak too much about it, but they're not going to be laying charges. If you go and have a beer at a friend's house, they're not going to be going through your door. They're not going to be ticketing you if you're in a, if you're in a, in a demonstration. So this is the passive stance that some officers who are serving right now are taking. Others have ramped it up a bit. They're joining organizations. They're volunteering. There's an organization called Police on Guard. Police on Guard is an organization of serving and active um, serving and retired police officers and corrections officers, military, et cetera. This is a fantastic group. Their mission is basically to inform the public, educate the public what your rights are, what the charter says. Uh, so that's that group that has ramped it up a bit. And there are other officers, we've heard about them, who, who actually quit. They've quit policing because they are so disgusted with some of the things that are being asked of them, and they know that it's illegal. So when you ask, you know, what are officers doing? Officers themselves are, you know, they're individuals, they're humans, they're not completely homogenous with where they are on a, on a particular issue. But for the most part, most officers do not agree with what is happening right now, especially, I would say, the, uh, you know, the ones that are halfway through their career or more, I think they're more apt to be aware of what is going on. They come from a time when policing was very, it still is a very honorable uh, <laughs> profession, but they didn't have these pressures that the younger officers are being exposed to for the first time and really aren't sure how to deal with it. So once again, most officers are not in line with what is happening right now, and they are not, uh, they are not, they're not on board. It's great to hear because, you know, honestly, people are looking to the past in, in when uh, oppressive regimes, uh, you know, went against the people, the freedom of the people, the rights of the people, and watched their, you know, the officials and military and the police just sort of go along with the program. It's so good to see when we see, you know, officers marching with the people in freedom rallies against lockdowns that that we know are harmful, et cetera, et cetera. There's another issue. Um, in Canada, particularly, we just had a law that passed actually in the House of Commons, uh, but didn't pass the Senate. So, but it came really close. That was so alarming that honestly, uh, especially Christians, but anybody who was pro-family, had a huge problem with. Um, and these, this was a law about uh, the transgender um, non-discrimination against transgender people. But 
it was a law also uh, making it illegal to have therapists help those who wished to come out of uh, transgender uh, feelings or, or, or homosexual inclinations and get help with getting rid of those that they didn't want. And that's now illegal or was going to be made illegal. Um, but that same law had a really sinister aspect in that parents who refused to go along with their child's uh, supposed want to be uh, transgender or whatnot, be called a different pronoun, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, could themselves face having their child taken away and or jail time themselves. Those kinds of things are mind-blowing. Again, it didn't pass the Senate, but... We're looking, parents particularly, are looking at those laws thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to us? You know, are the police going to come to our doors and take our children away um, when this is complete insanity? Uh, What are parents supposed to think? Again, we don't want to have, we're the same ones who are not wanting to support the defund the police. We're wanting to support our police. Many of our own sons and daughters are in uh, the police force or, you know, uh, primary um, first responders, if you want to call it. And yet at the same time, there's this fear being engendered. How, uh, as an as a former officer, what do you make of that and how, how should we respond to it? First of all, it's a very political issue. We have to be truthful here. One of the reasons politics has gotten out of hand to this point is we live in a free country and we have not been paying attention to what is happening politically. And a lot of this stuff started happening long before where we are right now. And people did not really pay attention or thought, you know, it's not that bad. And it's the, it's the ebb and flow moving forward of, of, of these types of movements that because people haven't really paid attention, now we are where we are. And some people are still not alarmed by what is going on. If you look online and you speak, I can't remember her name. There's many of doctors, by the way, but there's one in particular I'm going to quote. And she said something really, really profound. And she said, imagine you went to the hospital and asked the doctor to cut off your leg. The doctor would look at you and, and say that you have an issue. You have a mental issue. Uh, there's, you, there's some emotional issue going on and you would receive treatment because that would not be, uh, that would not serve you well in life. And then you have a situation where people are coming to the hospital and asking to cut off their genitals. And politically, that's being accepted. Okay, well, we're going to do that for you. But if you look online on YouTube, and you look online at many of these uh, programs that talk about people who regret these, the transitions that they've started. They've, there's a movement pushing people to, to do these transitions. And when it's too late, they can't be fixed. These are permanent transitions that have been done. You know, uh, women who are now growing beards and don't want that anymore, and it's too late. And it's very sad because they're being pressured in a way or, or a situation, whether they're depressed at the time or whatever reason they're, they're accepting this, these sort of narratives are being pushed in school. Children are learning that it's okay. They're not being told about the consequences in the future. Then they're stuck. And I unfortunately, I don't have statistics, but... Uh, from what I've seen, the statistics are alarming that the suicide rate amongst this population is very, very high. The, the regret is through the roof. It's extremely high. And it's, it's very alarming that this is happening. At the end of the day, one has to ask themselves, why is this happening? Well, I can tell you, or at least my belief is, is that this is a political movement to divide us. It's to divide the population. 
separate us into as many possible groups as possible, leave no stone unturned, and this is just one of many, where you can start catering to certain groups who you can make promises to, to ease their ills or ease the way that they're feeling so they will vote for you. And that is what is happening. We have politics that is being divided. This is not a medical issue. Most doctors are not on side with what is happening from the ones I've talked to and the ones I've seen and the videos that I've seen on YouTube, but they, they seem powerless. They're, this is something that's happening politically. They're following suit. So I think it's alarming personally, John. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible that this is happening, but it is. And with regard to police sort of enforcement of such things, I guess I guess you, you were mentioning before a, a number of police officers have quit the force, but you know what can they do internally to protest such a thing or to to uh, push back even internally uh, on such matters? Is there a way for police uh, when they're in the force? to say to those who would tell them, go and, you know, do make these arrests that, that seem to them totally wrong. You know, let's say C6 passed and, um, you know, the they found a bunch of parents who said, you know, who were opposed, like the kids, let's make a, make a, a pretty logical scenario. Um, kid goes to school, um, you know, they're watching videos in school, pushing the transgender ideology. Uh, this child, let's say, feels kind of, you know, uh, picked on at school or not as popular and sees this as an opportunity to become really popular. Uh, by the way, that's very common nowadays. You have this child say, you know what? I think I might, uh, let's say it's a boy who, who's getting picked on and not feel, not very good at sports or whatever, and says, you know what? What if I said it was a girl? And a teacher, an activist teacher, of which there are many, um, says, yeah, you know, and encourages that, encourages that over weeks and months. And eventually this boy is convinced to go for it in, in a bigger way because he's getting that adulation from the teacher. Perhaps the teacher's encouraging it in other students. And then the boy finally goes to his parents to say, you know what? I think I'm a girl, blah, blah, blah. And the parents, of course, are shocked, thinking, what? Where is this coming from? Opposed to this. And then they're finding out more and more this is happening at school. And they're starting to fight it now. The teacher then takes it up with the counselor, goes to the counselor, and they get basically gets to the point where they've made a case for this at the school and the, you know, the police are called in to come with social services and remove the child from the parents' home. What what happens in that scenario? Are are the police helpless to, you know, do anything about it? They must just follow orders and just go along and, and have this happen, or where does it get to? How does it work on the inside? That's actually a very complex question because there are many there are many facets in terms of what the police response could possibly be and what options a police officer would have. In a case, you know, let's let's look at this. If um, let's say a complaint came through and there's a there's a suspicion or or a an investigation that has to be done, because before you can make an arrest, you have to do an investigation. You have to have reasonable probable probable grounds to make that arrest in Canada. And so you can't just make an arrest because there's an allegation. There would have to be an investigation that was completed. So it starts with the officer who's starting the investigation. Is that officer going to do the investigation? Does that officer have a bias? Does that officer believe that uh, something, what is being asked of that officer to do is something that should not be legal? You would have some officers, I I can tell you right now, you would have some officers that, that would say, I have kids, I don't want this to happen. I am not going to be going forward with this investigation and, and no matter what, I'm going to write it off. And then you would have other officers who you may subscribe to this, uh, may subscribe to this and they may say, you know what, this is evil. 
you know, this is the 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 parents should be taken away. The children the children should be taken away. The, the children the parents should be charged and go to jail. So you know, once again, officers are individuals. They're exercising a discretion. They're their own biases and experiences. So that's the first stage. What happens in the investigation? The second stage is all right. Let's say uh, there's a warrant that's issued. Now we have a different set of circumstances. A warrant is, is issued for the arrest of this parent who has contravened this section. The, the parent doesn't want to come to the police station. Uh, they don't want to turn themselves in. Next thing you know, there's a warrant. Now, what about the two officers or the three officers that go in to execute the warrant? They may have no, they may have no idea what is the investigation is actually about. They may have no idea what, what took place. All they see is an arrest warrant. So they may have some background on the case. Are they going to uh, they're going to ex uh, to execute the warrant. Well, they really don't have a choice. They're compelled to execute the warrant. So in that case, they don't. They have no say. If they're if they're told to execute a warrant and they don't, they can be charged under the Police Services Act for failing for failing to perform their duties. So there there are different facets to this question, and you can see in this conversation how each one is affected at whatever stage of the investigation or the arrest. At the end of the day, let's look at the bigger picture. If you look at what happened in Germany in the 1930s and what's happening under Stalinist communism and what's happening in, uh, in communist countries, the state has become the prime educator of the children. The state is, supersedes what a, parent what a parent should be doing, and that is enshrined in their laws. And that's what, that's what certain politicians are trying to bring here. They're trying to make the state superior to the family unit. And that's dangerous because when you, when you have that, you don't have... The, the, the ability to take on the state. You don't have the ability to raise your children properly. The children are no longer really yours. They're no longer, they may be your flesh and blood, but their personalities and their beliefs and their values are now shaped by the state, which has a political end to it, which is very dangerous. You, I know, have spoken with Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky, one of the heroic uh, Canadian pastors who was uh, forceful in his insistence that the churches stay open, that the state has no uh, right to interfere with church services, uh, that we have that protected in our charter, the right of freedom to worship. Uh, yet they, you know, famously came, police famously came to his church. Uh, he yelled at them to get out. They had no warrant. Uh, and, and they did leave, actually. That was quite something. A whole bevy of officers came, and uh, he basically shouted them down and out of his church. Uh, he being a former, uh, someone who f lived under communism in Poland, and uh, I, was, I was privileged to speak with him as well. In that scenario, there are police officers who went there. He was later arrested on the highway, um, and so for the police, can you walk us through like the minds of police officers when they went, first of all, how would they have gone without a warrant to, to Arthur Pavlovsky's church? And then later on, what the arrest, what, what would have uh, been going on there for the police? Let's keep in mind that I'm not, obviously not privy to the conversations that took place behind the scene be between those police officers. So I don't know, but I, from an outsider point of view and from someone who's, trained in the tactics of policing i can comment on that on that angle so the first thing is is the police attending the church of arthur pavlovsky well there's nothing that prevents the police anywhere in canada from entering any place that any member of the public can enter so by virtue of the church being open to the public the police could come in there's nothing stopping them from doing it what the issue is is if they're interrupting a service if, this, if the police, as the state, as, the, as representatives of the state, start interrupting a, his service, that's a criminal offense. They can't do that. 
So can they come in? Yes. If the service is not on at that point, can they talk to him? Sure they can. It's his, it's his property or he's in charge of that church property. Can he have them ejected? Sure he can under the trespass to property act or whatever the equivalent is in, in, in uh, Alberta. So I'm talking about Ontario's trespass to property act. So on that, on that basis, he, he exercised his rights and he did not cooperate and he does not, he does not, obviously he doesn't believe in what is happening here or he doesn't believe in the narrative of COVID. He doesn't believe that his church service should be shut down. And I'm sure we, I completely agree with him. I think he's a hero. So what, what was the next step? He was arrested. He was arrested on the street while driving. Now, it's not just that he was arrested, and that's the key. It's not just that he was arrested. The way he was arrested is key. The way he was arrested is how you treat highly dangerous criminals. He was arrested in a manner that we call, or in policing is called a high-risk takedown. You only deploy that type when you put someone on their knees, when you're yelling at them commands to disable their ability to attack you, that is the process that those police officers used to arrest pa uh, Pastor Pavlovsky. Because they used those tactics, I can come to no other conclusion that they were designed to become an intimidation uh, vehicle or an intimidation tactic that was televised for other people to see, for other people to, to for fear to be put into their people that if you disobey, this is what's going to happen to you. There is absolutely no reason that Pastor Arthur should have been arrested in a high-risk takedown. The only caveat I can give is I obviously haven't seen the police files, but they're going to have to answer on why they deployed that tactic in that scenario on the road, which is a very dangerous place to be arresting someone in the first place if it's not absolutely necessary. That's fascinating because, I mean, it, hopefully a lot of people have seen the video. Uh, in my interview with uh, Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky, you can check out on, on my channel, show channel, uh, at LifeSite News and on Rumble. Uh, you will see that takedown. You will see that arrest. It was brutal. Uh, not only put on his knees, handcuffed behind his back, dragged, literally dragged to the police vehicle, thrown into the back seat, and thrown in so his legs were still sticking out the door because they actually had him lying down and to fit into the car uh, they, he had to like put his head down under uh, or sort of behind the the driver's seat and then they were able to shut the door and he they drove like that for a long time till he got to the to the jail just absolutely unreal john just to comment on that one of the and this is this is another absolute outrage when 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 pastor arthur was put in that position as police officers, you are taught about the dangers of something called positional asphyxia. Because you are, you have your hands behind your back, you're put into a position that's not natural for you. This is not how we are positioned when we breathe. And to be on his stomach and to have his head below his, his uh, shoulders with his hands behind his back, he would be someone who could be potentially in danger of positional asphyxia. And the officers didn't seem to care. I mean, this is extremely alarming. As a former police officer, I would I would never treat anyone like that, even the worst of criminals, because even the worst of criminals, at the end of the day, they're still human, they still deserve dignity, and they will be judged accordingly by someone else, not by me. My job is not to intimidate them, it is not to hurt them, it is not to cause them harm, and that's what was happening on that day. Those officers, I hope they answer for what they have done, because that is, that is incomprehensible and is just unacceptable. Is it possible that officers themselves are told to 
uh, be rather severe to make an example of this guy. Because if you recall at the time, uh, the even the premier uh, is out publicly having said we're going to get the, I can't remember the exact wording, but uh, we're going to crush the Pavlovskis or something like that. Um, you know, uh, so there was a lot of hatred in the media and by politicians being engendered toward Pastor Pavlovsky as a, a you know, a, a super spreader and whatever else. But could police be given that kind of direction from superiors or from politicians? Does that ever happen? Yes, it is possible that that has happened. That certainly could happen. I don't know whether or not that has happened in Pastor uh, Pavlovsky's case, but officers could be told we want to make a show. We want to uh, we, want, we want to show the public that this is what what could happen to them if this is if they're going to defy us. So it's very possible that that, that had happened. Actually, the the past weekend on Canada Day, I was speaking to um, um, Father Dairaco from Kingston, and he is an absolutely brilliant man, and and he summed up what is happening in in very few words. And I, I have not stopped thinking about what he had said, and especially when it comes to police just following orders or soldiers just following orders, he had talked about codependency. Codependency is basically the cause of why some of these officers are acting the way they are with disregard for what they should be doing. It's because they're codependent. They're dependent on their employment. Their commanders are dependent on their compliance. And as you move up the chain, the same applies. Deputy chiefs following his orders, and they're dependent, if they want to stay deputy chiefs and work under him, they're, they're dependent on following what he has told them to do. So this chain continues from the very top, from the politicians, all the way down to the officer on the road. And somewhere in that chain, because this is a chain of evil in this context that we're talking about, it, following orders, is nothing. there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's done lawfully and legally, when it exceeds the law, when it is done outside of the law, that's when there's a problem. And somewhere that chain has to be broken. You absolutely have to break that chain. So yes, it is possible what has happened. I can see the dynamics on why it could have happened. But uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a mess. One of the things that uh, happened uh, in the United States all over the place with the Black Lives Matter uh, was this, you know, the, the police um, being condemned by them while at the same time being told to back off on real illegal activity. We're seeing some of the same things happen here in Canada with regard to the First Nations people and the burning of churches. Now, mind you, the churches that are being burned often are inside the communities of the First Nations people. So they're actually inflicting harm on the First Nations people themselves rather than, oh, it's a protest against, uh, you know, the Catholic Church for having harmed the First Nations. No, 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 no. They're actually harming the First Nations people. But in the U.S., there was this kind of, from some legislator, from some governors, back off, let the Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, uh, uh, folks do what they're doing, almost as a, as a protest, and, and it's good and fine and wonderful. Please back off. Tell us, if you can, give us your thoughts generally on, on what's going on there. That would be great. There's certainly a movement going on. It's part of a, it's part of a PR campaign. Um, it's, it's des- I believe that this PR campaign is very similar to what we've, we've seen in, in uh, Nazi Germany before 1939, like the early 30s, and when the early to mid 30s. And what, has, what happened there was when Hitler was in Germany going for election, running for election, and running to be the supreme leader, there was many steps that had to be taken for him to solidify his power. 
One of the things that he had done once he assumed a little bit of power was to talk about how life in Germany could be so much better if we did A, B, C, D. But at the same time that he was doing that, he was causing suffering amongst his people. He was exacerbating the hunger situation. He was exacerbating um, the, 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 the difficulties that people were having. He came to be popular because he created the soup kitchens. He created the, the bread lines. He created the, 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 the programs to give people work and purpose. But at the same time, he was one that was causing it. And I think to a large degree, this is what's happening in politics today. I think to a large degree, if you look at things like the, the, the needle exchange, you're, you're, they call it harm reduction, but it's, what, it's, what it is, it's actually addiction perpetuation. So let's take the parallel to what's happening with the churches today. You have the churches being burned down. You have vandalism. You have criminal offenses of arson taking place. And you have Gerald Butts, who's talking about, oh, we can understand why that could have happened. That's his, that's his statement on it. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And the prime minister is not talking that this is a hate crime, because it is. It's a targeted crime against an identifiable portion of society, and that is wrong. That is a hate crime, and it's, that's not how it's being talked about. So what is, what, where I'm going with all of this is that you have a situation where it seems that it's politically expedient to exploit the situation that's happening with the burning of churches, to further a political narrative and to create even more decision, more division. And the people who are suffering in this case are two people, are two groups of people, the natives where these churches are being burned in their, in their lands and the Catholic church, the people who are Catholic. You are now being vilified for being Christian for something that happened long before you were born. You had no part in this and now you are, you are being made to suffer. It's important to remember history. It's important to discuss history. It's also important to discuss history in the context of how it happened. And there's a lot to this narrative that is not being discussed. There are, there are actually, you know, it may be not nice to say, uh, sorry, not um, uh, vogue to say, but there are people such as Thomas Highway. Look at his story on the internet about him going to residential school, how he flourished going to resident, residential school. If you talk about that today, you're vilified. You'll try, they'll try to cancel you. But that is his story. And he came out fully telling his story, and then he was almost canceled if he didn't retract his story. So you can see that there's political pressure on people to not talk about the other side of this. There is absolute terrible things that happen in residential schools. We can't deny that. We know that that happened. We know that some of the political statements that were made by our political leaders at that time, liberals and conservatives both, you don't hear the liberal side, but you only, they only talk about Sir Johnny McDonald. You don't hear about uh, Laurier's um, culpability in these residential schools, Pierre Elliott Trudeau's culpability in these schools. They never talk about that. But like I said, these actions that we're seeing, the burning of churches, these are all political narratives. They're all tied into to dividing us, to making us fear one another, to, to making us distrust one another. And who's going to Who's going, to, who's going to win it after this is all done? The politicians by dividing us. So it's our responsibility to pay attention to what is happening in politics. It's our responsibility to use our faculties of critical thinking and really evaluate what is happening. Who, who's, where is this coming from? Who's forcing us to have this message or who's putting this message upon us or who's putting this public relations upon us? And what is their end goal? We absolutely have to do that. Otherwise, 
we're not paying attention, and we're going to be victims in the long term on the whims of someone else who has some very unhealthy ideas for what our future is going to hold. Rob Stocky, truly fascinating. I mean, this is exactly why we created LifeSite News to get the truth out, because in all honesty, the narrative is being parroted by all of the mainstream media. The CRTC is chopping off anyone who would say any differently. They wanted to even control the whole of the internet uh, so that Canada could, China style, uh, try and censor what is able to be heard by Canadians. Absolutely unbelievable. Thanks be to God that didn't pass the Senate, uh, but we'll see. Uh, Rob Stocky, it's been truly fascinating speaking with you. Thank you for coming on the John Henry Weston Show. Thank you so much. Have a great day. God bless you. God bless you too. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we are communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.